All right. The hour has come. That's what we're going to hear from Jesus today. I put, I put a, a premise thought. Here's my premise this morning that's in your outline. Our life, our existence, our pursuit, our meaning, our self-definition, our sense of well-being, they all need one ultimate thing that defines everything else. All those things in our lives need one ultimate thing that can then define everything else about our existence. If you try to do that list of things in life without one ultimate thing, guaranteed we will miss the purpose of God. There is an ultimate thing that defines everything else. And Jesus points to it in John chapter 17. So today, I mean, our intention in this moment is to, to work our way through this prayer uh, that Jesus prayed. I, I don't have a handle on how long we'll take. This is not the pace in which we will go. Two words. We're just going to do two words today. We will speed up, but uh, I couldn't get past these two words. Let's read John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, which began in John 13 and worked through the evening with his disciples, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Well, Father, we want to receive life from your word. and We know we need you, Holy Spirit, to lead us into the truth. So, Lord, from wherever we are, whatever's going on in our lives, Lord, would you lead us into the truths of these words? In Jesus' name, amen. The hour has come. The hour. I just want to analyze those two words. If you are an average person on the face of the earth today, uh, it looks like you're going to get about 72 years. Now, if you're an American, you get a little bit more. But if you live in other parts of the world, you get a little bit less. So you can maybe get 72 years to figure out how you're going to spend. So if you break that down, it's like 26,000 days that you get or 630,000 hours. Right, be interesting, right? You, you start your life's journey and you get handed this package here. 630,000 hours. Spin carefully. Here's your existence. And in those hours, we're going to experience everything from births and the excitement and the joy to deaths and the departures of people that are near and dear to us. We will have celebrations in those years and we will have setbacks. We will experience great achievements in our lives and we will walk through great disappointments as well. There's going to be love and joy in life. There's going to be grief and loss in life. Those hours are going to be many. And at some point, you're going to hit a few moments here and there where you stop and trying to make sense of those hours. And so if, if you do education, right, education tries to make us well-rounded. Uh, we, we had six, six of our kids in college in the last decade, so we're, we're 
overwhelmed with how expensive it is for people to be well-rounded in life. But, you know, they, they take classes, and you guys remember this, you took classes in high school, took classes in college, that, you know, not exactly part of your core curriculum, but you got to take these classes, right? So there's classes like history and anthropology and sociology and psychology and biology. Uh, and all these things are, are, are trying to make sense of the hours of our existence. They're speaking, and I mean, Ancestry.com is kind of loaded into this thing, right? You can, you can load in your background, and you can get some history about who you are and where you come from, right? You're trying to make sense of the life and the hours that you've been given. And it's a curious thing. Only human beings do this, right? You ain't got no ants or, you know chipmunks sitting around stroking their beard, pondering their existence, right? They're just not doing that. But you and I are doing it. Tim Keller has written an interesting book called Making Sense of God. He says this, he says, Martin Heidegger argues convincingly in being and time that human beings are distinguished from other living creatures by their capacity to put their own existence into question. He says, they are creatures for whom existence as such, not just particular features of it, is problematic. But what are we actually asking when inquiring about the meaning of life? Something has meaning, listen, if it signifies, if it acts as a sign, pointing to something beyond itself. If people say that their lives feel meaningless... Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have good jobs, family and friends, and the means to, wit, to live in a material world comfortably. If, um, pardon me, it means that they are not sure what all the activity is being done for. They're not sure all they're making and getting actually matters, makes a difference, or accomplishes anything beyond itself. And Jesus has this moment with his disciples where he prays and he lets us in on it. And we get to read him saying, Father, the hour has come. That's an interesting thing to say. For the God who is in the form of man who recognizes there are many hours there are all kinds of hours in our existence. There's lots of history. There's lots of anthropology. There's lots of stuff going on all around us. And he stops and he says, right here is the hour. And immediately that hour then points significantly to every other hour, doesn't it? Because if this is the hour, then what is it saying about all the other hours? Well, quite honestly, it's helping all those other hours to make sense. All the other ones in some way kind of report back to this one. The God of the universe, pay attention. This could be the most important two words you ever hear. The God of the universe stops in this moment. Remember, Jesus is the one who created everything. He says, Father, the hour is here. Been a lot of other hours, been a lot of amazing hours, but this is it. This is the hour. Now, I don't know how you do pondering and analyzing your own life. Most of us don't intentionally do this. We sort of accidentally do it. Life kind of serves up moments where we sit down and we reevaluate. Where am I? Why is life this way? How come it didn't turn out that way? 
How many years do I have left? Right? And what's interesting, I think the most hyper moment where this happens for most of us is uh, midlife. You know, midlife is that moment where a lot of stuff has sort of been done, a little bit accomplished, finished. And we get this moment where we just ponder and think, what, what's it all meant? What significance did some of this stuff have? Was it significant? How do I feel about where I am in this journey, right? This is what midlife does to us. Keller points this out using Leo Toll's story. He says in his book, A Confession, Leo Toll's story, he was a, one of the more famous novelists uh, back in the 1800s. He was a Russian novelist, wrote War and Peace, if you're familiar with the biggest book in the history of man, I think. In A Confession, Leo Tolstoy tells how he was leading a very successful life until around the age of 50. He began to realize that every loved one would be taken away from him. And all he had written would eventually be forgotten. In light of that, the question was, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? He also asked, how can we fail to see this? This is what is surprising. One can only live while one is intoxicated with life. That's a good phrase. As soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that it is all a mere fraud and a stupid fraud. He had sobered up and was now thinking rationally. He could not now go back to writing his novels and loving his family because the lack of an objective lasting meaning had dawned on him. He could not go back to his pre-reflective state. There's something about sober moments and there's something about doing life intoxicated with life. That's a good phrase. I don't mean to use it in the sense that, hey, you, you, you drank too much alcohol and you're kind of stumbling around. No, you get intoxicated with life by drinking life. And you drink a lot of it. And it just sucks you into it. And next thing you know, you're just doing the next thing. And you're just filling up your schedule with the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And, you know, if you follow the trace of that, you know, when you were a child, you were born, you didn't have much consciousness. You don't even remember the first few years. And then, then your childhood came. And you were intoxicated with childhood. You just, you know, you were a child. No big agenda. You didn't think about a lot of stuff. You played with the latest toys. You hung out with your family. You're just doing life. And then the teenage years came. It got a little more complicated. There was this new stuff on the block. There was a significance of friendships. And, and, and you started to dawn on you, hey, how am I going to belong outside of my own family? Hey, they've been cool all these years. But, hey, there's a whole other world out there. Who am I out there? And are my ears too big? And what about my hair? And then all of a sudden you're thinking about all kinds of stuff, trying to make your life makes sense. And then next thing you know, you're just doing life and it's college years. You got to choose a degree and you got to get a job and you got to win a spouse and you got to start a family. And then there's that career thing and you, you kind of get it going. I mean, you're just, you're just drinking life, right? And it just keeps happening and things grab your attention and, oh, I'm going to be married. Oh, what's that going to be like? Oh, I found somebody who loves me and they're committed to me forever. Blah, 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 blah. And you have, you have kids and there's this little years and then there's the middle years and you just keep growing. And next thing you know, you get a little bit older and you've achieved something. But, you know, kind of noticing there's a little bit of a ceiling going on and you get to that 45, 55 year thing and something starts to change. 
the people that have been in your life all these years, they start dying. And something goes off in you, right? You get your first moment to take a, a break from just taking the next sip of life. And you start realizing this isn't permanent. This goes away. I don't know if you've been through that season of your life. I mean, a lot of you guys are, are beyond those years. And, and you start seeing the fragileness of life and the brokenness of life and the, and the pain that can come when something is suddenly in our mind, we understand that's not permanent. And, and it all comes in the mail at the same time, right? Empty nest syndrome happens. And if you loved family, you all of a sudden get in the mail. Hello, that's not permanent. Everybody who's lived with you all these years, they're leaving. Thank you very much, those of you in the front row. Uh, and so, you know, you, you, you do life. And life has this moment where if you'll just stop and put down the drink for a second and stop taking it all in. And by the way, a lot of people don't want to do that, right? Because the silence can be horrible. You'd rather just take another sip. I'd rather just do the next thing. I'd rather stay busy at work. I'd rather develop a hobby. I'd rather be so busy that every second of my life is filled with noise because the last thing in the world I want to do is sober up and sound like this guy. What a mess. Are you, what, what is this even all about? And then, then you get angry and you get weird and you, you're conflicted about all kinds of things. All right, this, this is what happens at some point in our lives. And Jesus comes along and he installs a single reference point, a single reference point that will now speak to everywhere. This is like true north for a compass, right? At some point you're trying to figure out, hey, what direction am I going in in life? This is what we're trying to figure out. Well, you know, whatever direction you're facing, if there is no true north, you have no direction. And you have no idea what direction you, you know, most people are facing in this direction. So I'm kind of going where most, well, where's that leading? I don't know. But everybody seems to be going there. And then you install True North. And True North tells you, well, you're going east. Well, actually, you're about 10 degrees off from east. Did you want to go east? Is that where you wanted to go? Because you're about 10 degrees off. Well, how do you even know you're off? Because True North is now speaking to every sense of direction in my life. Everything I could do and point at is now got a definition for it. And Jesus installs True North in this moment. When he turns around and says, the hour has come. Of all the hours in the Bible, the hour has come. Of all the hours for Jesus' mission, the hour has come. Of all the prophetic moments where God interacted with a people on earth, telling them this, telling them that, doing this, showing up here, sending signals, establishing things like tabernacles and a people group, the hour that explains it all is here. And that hour defines something about our existence as well. Greg Kukul's excellent book, The Story of Reality, he says, what did Jesus come to do? And he says, the hour. What hour, Jesus? What did you come to do? Sometimes knowing what Jesus did not come to do is almost as important as knowing what he did come to do. Because a wrong understanding of the first can lead to a confusion on the second. So let's be clear. Jesus did not come to help us get along or 
teach us to take care of the poor or to restore social justice. These have been very popular items in the last few years for our culture. There are many noble people who are drawn to Jesus for his moral excellence. It's almost like we've got this moral project going on in our lives. We've got our own set of values going on. Oh, and we get wind that Jesus sounds like he's kind of into that too. Hey, Jesus, you want to be part of the civil rights movement? Come on in. Hey, you want to be part of fixing this thing about our broken humanity? Hey, can we pull you into our psychology class this way? Because you sound like you're after some of the same things we're after. Oh, well, be careful. There are many noble people who are drawn to Jesus for his moral excellence. However, often their admiration of his civic virtue has distracted them from a more important matter. Their mistake is thinking that Jesus came principally to teach us how to live a better life. He did not. And this kind of filters its way into Christianity. It's one thing for those who really don't understand Jesus and never read the Bible to come up with these ideas, but it's another thing when it seeps into the church. And then all of a sudden the church starts to sound like it's this self-improvement program. And that's what we're really after because isn't that what Jesus was after? Personal prosperity found its way into the church. And all of a sudden, that's what Jesus came for. Yeah, I remember there was a, a TV program years ago. It was a Christian TV program. The name of it was Success in Life. Is that what Jesus came for? So you and I could be successful in life. And then and even today, we've got folks reading, uh, writing bestsellers with titles like Your Best Life Now. And when you hear this enough, it starts sounding like, wait, why did, why did Jesus come? Well, Jesus showed up so that whatever you got going on, whatever troubles you're facing, whatever improvement is available for you and the personal project you're on, he'd love to join you in that. If you just put your faith in Jesus, Jesus will join you on your project. Can I, can I say, that's not the God of the universe? John chapter 17 is an invitation for you and I to pay attention to God's project. This is the things Jesus is praying about. This is the project he's on, on planet earth. And he prays about them specifically. Amen. So he comes out and he comes and says, the hour has come. The hour has come. This is it, Father. All right, well, what's this hour going to do? Now, can I, can I tell you, I could start in multiple places in the Bible and find good summaries of this. I'm going to pick 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It is not the only summary. There are many summaries of the hour. But this one really has some things that are simple and clear, and it's a, you know, it's a small size passage. So here's the hour explained biblically. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this, that's a good summary moment. All of what, Paul? All this is from God. Now listen carefully to this hour. Who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Pay attention to that word. It's going to use it five times in these couple of verses. 
That is, in Christ. Jesus, what are you doing here? In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. If you want to understand why Jesus prays what he does in John chapter 17, this verse, hold on to it while we travel through John 17. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So hold that and listen to Jesus say this. Father, the hour has come. That's the hour. That paragraph is what Jesus is referring to. Of all the hours, Jesus did miracles, right? There are people raised from the dead. There are people fed miraculously. There are historic things that God did, opened up seas and people walked through on dry ground. There's all kinds of stuff. This hour is the hour. All that stuff exists in order to point to this hour. What was all that about? Be careful because you have a culture that doesn't mind a moral guide named Jesus. They're just not interested in him being a savior. He's not a consultant. He's not a guy with some cool programming that if you believe this, you'll feel better out yourself and you'll get along with everybody else. That's not what Jesus is here for. He is here to reconcile us to God. I mean, just just pull this apart a little bit here. Here's the hour. Right, for, Paul starts with this, and then he moves into the explanation of how it comes about. Right, This is the hour for individual people to become new creations, to become something that they were not, for something in our lives to now be labeled old and something else to now be new. This is the hour that Jesus is going to accomplish something that if he had not done what he was doing in this hour, you and I would never be any different than what we've ever been. There would be no new creations. Oh, there might be well-intended people who read a book and they're going to try and do something different in their life, but you wouldn't be a new creation. You'd be exactly the same old thing you always were. Except this hour came and it changed who you are. Now, what I want to pull this into our reality is, I'm just, for me, and and, and nobody else here in the room, this is for me. I'm living in an hour right now. Right now. In my life. I just want to know for my own sake. My own soul. How much is the hour that Jesus referring to here. Affecting this hour for me. Because the hour has come. And it is the hour that all other hours report back to. It's the hour that informs every other hour. It is the hour that helps me understand why there is suffering in my life, why there is difficulty in my life, why there is challenge in my life, why somebody is dead in my life. It is the hour that explains all the other hours. 
A Savior had to come and show up in our world with all of its brokenness and all of its pain and all of its confusion to fix what was going on here. That hour had to come. And and when I bump into the fallenness of this world, it is so fallen that the only one who could fix it would be the Son of God himself come as a man. That's the hour that we're talking about. But then it unpacks this reality. Once this hour comes, listen to what happens to us, right? Romans 6, Paul says it this way. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That really is the question he's asking, but he he adds on that grace may abound, right? Because that's what is being reported. Paul's out there teaching that, hey, you know, when you sin big, God's grace is big. And, And that's exactly true. And so you get some people kind of got rubbed by that. The moralists get rubbed by that the wrong way. It's like, wait, 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 wait. So what, you just sin, do whatever you want, just keep sinning? Well, the real question here that gets unpacked in this hour is, are we to continue in sin? Is that our story? Old creations, bound to sin. Sin's dominant. It's got all the authority. You and I are never going to be an ounce different. Try as much as you want. Be open to be different. It doesn't matter. You are an old creature. And you're just going to keep being an old creature. Is that? No. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, I can't unpack all of Romans 6. But if you've ever read Romans 6, you do know what hour that's referring to. When did you die? To sin. Well, you died with Christ. Thank you very much. At the cross. You died to sin at the cross, at the hour. That hour is what answers the question. Shall I continue in sin? Well, Keith, you're, gonna, you're talking about this hour. Can I talk to you about that hour? Because in that hour, this hour got redefined. Are you going to continue in sin? Are you going to take another step further into your unbelief, Keith? Into your fears? Are, are, are you going to surrender yet again to your particular personality? And let it dominate and affect. Is that what you're going to do? You're going to do that one more hour, Keith? Because there's another hour that defines this hour. And it's telling you, you don't have to do that any longer. Now, if we take that hour away, good luck. That's an appropriate term, by the way. Good luck. Hopefully there's some strange force out there that nobody even can define called luck. That can somehow make it different for you. There's an hour that came that makes a difference. We, verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him back in that hour by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead in that hour by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Why can I have newness of life at the doorstep for me in this hour? Well, because of that hour. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider that right now in this hour. No matter what else is going on in this hour, that hour redefines this hour, and I have to think differently about my life. So that's the hour 
that we're talking about. This verse from Paul unpacks the word reconcile and reconciliation five times. This is the hour of reconciliation with God. This is a big word. This is not a popular word. It backhands you. Right? You, you, you do hear it backhanding you. Be reconciled to God. Okay, well, what is that saying about you right now? You're not. I'm not. If it's telling me I need to be, it's telling me me and God aren't on good terms. We need to be reconciled. This is the starting place of the gospel. It's a reason why Paul says it five times, and then he turns around and tells all Christians, this is your message. This is what you get to tell everybody. You are ambassadors for Christ, pleading with people. To be reconciled to God. You don't get to greet people who don't know Jesus and present the idea that, hey, no, you're cool. No, it's cool. You know, you're sincere and you got some decent morality about you. You know, you don't do the really bad stuff over here. So, no, 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 no. You're cool. Well, you're not an ambassador for Christ then. You're misrepresenting the gospel. The gospel begins in a very awkward place. It begins by saying you and God are not on good terms. And listen, I'm in, I'm in front of you in line. Apart from this hour, I am not on good terms with God. And I never could be. Nothing about what I was going to do that could ever, ever make that right. The word reconcile, it means to change, to restore, to return to favor. Right? And in this verse... Verse 19, he unpacks that this this is the hour where your trespasses are not going to be counted against you. Well, that only is something that we go, wow, did you hear that? If I'm willing to accept the backhand of it, they were going to be counted against me. I know I'm, I'm pausing and making a big deal out of this because you live in a culture that is lying to you horribly in this category. This feel-good culture doesn't have the spiritual guts to face itself. And it just wants to slosh out one more reason for you to feel okay about yourself. Can I tell you, the goat is responsible for that. You know what I mean by the goat? I don't mean Tom Brady. I'll I'll mean him later. But for right now, the devil, the greatest liar of all time. I guess I mean the gloat, the gloat. Okay, that works. He is selling you on an idea that you're okay. And how can I get you to believe that? Well, I can either feature you're not that bad a person or I can change God. I can either change you or I can change God. So, you know, you're certainly not as bad as a bunch of people I could come up with. Okay, that makes me feel better. So I'm good with God then. Yeah, because I'm certainly not as bad as some other people that I know God's not all right with. Or I can just adjust God a little bit. I mean, God, he's not so uptight. He's, he's not so particular. He's really kind of okay with a lot of stuff. Just give him a chance, and he'll give you a chance. And then that sounds right, doesn't it? Can I, can I let you read with me from Isaiah chapter 5? Isaiah chapter 5, I won't read the whole chapter. <clears throat> But you get a revelation of God's intention here. 
that God is going to set the universe in place, and then he has expectations for it. And when they don't meet the expectations, there's this thing in the Bible called judgment. Scripture says it is appointed unto man to die once, and then the judgment. I don't get to write that out of the Bible. I have to figure out, what do I do with that, right? So here's, here's God telling his story in Isaiah chapter 5. He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Starting off pretty good. It's a love song, right? My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. That's not a good, helpful translation because none of us know anything about grapes. Uh, You could translate that Hebrew word into the word stink berries. That would be more helpful. But if you've ever eaten really bitter, rotten tasting grapes, that's what's being described here. He wanted it to yield choice, good grapes. It yielded stink berries instead. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield stink berries? All right, stop. If you didn't read anything more, does the God of the universe pay attention to his creation? Or is he kind of like, whatever, I'm chill. You know, me and the angel just sitting up here, you know, listening to the Beatles, smoking dope. We're chill. We're cool. Sorry, I'm kind of from the 70s. Verse 5, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting and he looked for something. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. If you read the rest of the chapter, God describes a people in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts. Can I just say this? I don't believe God's against any one of those things. This is not an indictment that God hates lyres and harps, tambourines and flutes and wine. This is what he hates. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. They don't have the time of day for me who created them. That's the problem. And how does God respond to that being the problem? Well, he, he actually brings judgment 
on the very thing he created. This is his vineyard. He made it. These are his people. He made them. And the Bible informs us he is going to rain judgment upon them. That's a weighty, sobering reality. If it's true, if that, is that what the Bible teaches? And I think you have to read the Bible to discover that. But yes, it is what the Bible teaches. I don't think I wrote this in your outline, but when man sets aside and rejects God's purpose, what's the outcome? All right, just think for a second in the world in which you live. How many ways has the world taken up something that God created and said, eh, I don't know what you wanted with this, but this is what we're going to do with it. I don't know what your intention was to give me a brain and to give me affections and desires and longings for things. I don't know what you were thinking with that, but here's what I'm going to do with it. I don't know what your idea was that you would bless the fruit of the ground and you would reward us with things to enjoy and you would give money into our lives. I don't know what you had in mind, but this is what I'm going to do with it. The Lord planted a vineyard and he looked for something. The Lord gave breath to humanity. He gave talents to humanity. He gave brains that think. He gave lives and relationships. He gave all that to his vineyard and he looked for something. What becomes of the creator-creature relationship in your estimation if the creatures set aside God's purpose? Just stop for a second. What becomes of the relationship? Is, it, is that a significant problem in your mind? Or is that like kind of a speed bump? I mean, God will, he'll get past it. That is the real key as to whether or not we as individuals lean into the gospel. That is the key. If you and I have become so man-centered in our ideas and thinking, that we stare into creation and we say creation exists for the sake of the, crea- the, uh, the, the creatures in creation. That's why it exists. And we have become not God-centered. We, we no longer welcome the God who created everything for a purpose. Well, now it's going to answer to other things. And the only conflict here is not this way, it's this way. You don't agree with me about that. No, that should be done this way. No, everybody should have the right to do that their own way. And this is where all the argument is. And in a man-centered world, that's all we're fighting about today. But what about the God who created us? Does does he have an opinion that any of his creation actually answers to? Greg Kokel says this. Jesus came to earth to save sinners. The statement is so common to our ears. It's easy to miss its significance. Save means to rescue from imminent danger. Jesus came to rescue us because we were in danger. What was that danger? What was Jesus rescuing us from? Here's the answer. Jesus did not come to rescue us from our ignorance or our poverty or our oppressors or even from ourselves. That's what the saviors of our hour are seeking to save us from. Oh my goodness, if we could say anything more about the savior of education, oh, we'd have nothing to talk about. We would talk 24-7 about, you know what would fix people? Better schools. We'll just export good schools to this country, to that country, to that neighborhood, to that people group. If we could just educate people, right, we could save them. That's what we think. 
That's not what Jesus came to save us from. It's not our ignorance that's the problem. It's not our poverty that's the problem. It's not the oppressors of other people who are over us that are the problem. Although, oh my goodness, don't get me started on some of these things. This is what so many Christians are living their life right now with the victim mindset and let us figure out who's got the power and who's abusing it. That's what we're all about. Let me just watch every podcast and every show that's going to educate me about who's abusing the power out there. Because if we could just fix the power abusers out there, if we could just get them out of office, if we could get people who are dishonest with power in their lives, if we could just fix that, that's not a savior. It will not save us. There was an hour that came and a savior who came in that hour. He came to save us. But listen carefully. Jesus came to rescue us from the father. Remember, the king is angry. He is the one who is offended. He is the one who is owed. He is the sovereign we have rebelled against. The father we have disobeyed. The friend we have betrayed. And that is a dangerous place to be. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Father, the hour has come for me to rescue your people from your wrath. That's the hour. It is not turning over some new leaf for humanity to try some new program or to get some new thing going so we could do this better with each other. It is to rescue us from the judgment that we all deserve. Father, the hour has come. And in that hour, we get to be reconciled to the Father. Reconciled to the Father. What does that mean for this hour right now that I'm living in? What does it mean for the Father to be my Father? What starts with me recognizing He hasn't always been my Father. He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. But to as many as did receive Him, He gave the right to become the children of God. So at some point, my heart it becomes aware He is. My father, what does this hour feel like when I know, when I know me and God are reconciled? We're good. And I know it, not because of something based in me, but because the hour that came and what the Savior did for me on my behalf. There's a sense of belonging to a father. Belonging. I love that word, belonging. Because we're all looking for belonging. Something about sin operating in our world and the way in which we feel, we we have a hard time with belonging. And Galatians chapter 4 says, He has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. Right? There is this hour of his son who did something that sent the spirit into our life that now we cry out from the inside out. There's this deposit of awareness that's inside of me that I stand in this hour, but because of that hour, I can stand and say, 
are my father in this moment? What do I expect from you in this moment? Abba, father, I guess I expect you to be my father in this moment. I guess I expect that, that you're not at odds with me. I guess I expect that I'm no longer under your judgment and your opposition. I guess I expect that I'm part of your family and you're going to bless me and care for me and interact with me with what absolutely I need because of a love that a father has and I've been restored to that. Let me just warn us. See, these things, we skirt past them so quickly and they're not deep enough in us. They're not real enough to us. How many, I wish we could do a blood, blood work test right now, just to figure out. How many of us, we take some blood out, and we could just get you a vial, and it would come back to you by the time the service is over, and it would tell you how much you are desperately seeking belonging right now. Wouldn't you wish you could know that about yourself? And everybody else around you could figure out how that's operating in you? How disappointed are you with the way your life has gone, with the people who have played a role in your life, that they didn't make you feel a certain way, that they didn't show up a certain way, that they didn't pull off affirming and strengthening and making noise in certain categories that for you would have been very, very significant. I think we all know this. I'm not saying anything anybody doesn't know here. There isn't a person in your life who is not going to let you down. Not one. So how does God fix that in us? Well, he sends the spirit of his son into our hearts and it cries, I belong to you, Father. I'm yours. And you could never fail me You could never betray me. You could never do me wrong. You could never be distracted. You could never neglect me. You could never be doing somebody else instead of doing me. You could never have weird motives. You could never be using me. It's impossible for God to be any of those players that the people in our lives are going to be. And if you're here, if you're a young person and and you're trying to find your belonging in your parents and your siblings, oh, that's not going to work really well. When you raise the bar that high, they can't give it to you at that level. You're looking for something that you're not going to get. Oh, they'll give it a shot. And it'll be a mixture of some good intentions and some neglect and weakness. And that's true everywhere. You know, if you're, you're married, are you, are you looking for your spouse to fix how you feel about yourself and about life? They, they can't do that for you. Did you come to Lakeview Christian Center thinking somehow we had some kind of magic thing going on here? Everybody in this church is going to love you so perfectly. (laughs) And if that were true, people wouldn't come to me and tell me when they didn't get loved here well. (laughs) Can I just prepare you? There's going to be a day when you're part of this church and you won't feel like you belong. That day is coming. Because something about your life is going to be so significant or so painful and people aren't going to step up and meet you in that moment in the best, most sincere, ultimate way. They're just not. 
But there was an hour that came. The hour, Jesus said. Father, the hour has come. Where I'm going to do something and I'm going to put it inside of them that they belong to you. You are their father. And you will never disappoint them. You will never let them down. That's the hour. The hour is not this way. Although we, we taste a lot from God this way. But the hour ultimately is that way. Is belonging to him. All right, let me finish up. Seth, you can come back up. I don't know where you are. All right, so you and I, we're going to sober up at some point in our lives. We are going to stop drinking life at such a high volume level that at some point we're going to stare out and think about some things. And all the hours of our lives are going to answer to something in that moment. And if they don't answer to the hour, we're going to pull a Leo Tolstoy. We're going to be mad, disappointed. We're going to feel trapped, let down. Hey, where's the refund line, God? Because everything about my life is bleeding right now. One more thought from Mr. Keller, and we're going to pray. He says, by contrast to to Mr. Tolstoy's moment of sobering up, life, meaning, and purpose play out for the Christian believer in a very opposite direction. Christians do not say to themselves, stop thinking out the implications of what you believe about the universe. Just try to enjoy the day. No. If a Christian is feeling downcast and meaningless, it is because, in a sense, she is not being rational enough. She's not thinking enough about the implications of what she believes about the universe. Christians believe that there is a God who made us in love to know him, but that a human race, as a human race, we turned away and we're lost to him. However, he has promised to bring us back to himself. Father, the hour. God sent his son into the world to break the power of sin and death at infinite cost to himself by going to the cross. Christian teaching is that Jesus rose from the dead. He passed through the heavens and now is ruling history and preparing a future new heaven and a new earth without death and suffering in which we will live with him forever. And then all the deepest longings of our hearts will find their fulfillment. Father, it's now. The hour has come. The hour to do that. The hour to fully and completely accomplish that, that hour has come. But that just can't be some historic hour sitting on a bookshelf somewhere in the back of our minds, almost never accessed. The way Jesus says this, it captures my attention. It makes all of my 630,000 hours stand up at attention and look at that one hour and say, wait, what did you just say? We got a bunch of hours going on here. 
There's a bunch of seasons of my life and activities of my life going on. There's a bunch of things I'm freaking out. And Monday got a big test. Oh my gosh, what if I fail it? What about that hour? That hour cannot be thought about accurately without that one hour informing it. And that's true for every one of us here. Something happened in this hour when the son of God said, Father, the hour, the hour has come. And I want to pray for two types of people this morning. I want to pray for those who who are in need of finding the belonging of the God, the Father, who created you. The one to whom you needed to be reconciled. You needed it. I needed it. This is not a slap on the the face. You may be a more moral person than everybody else in this room. You may have given away more stuff and lived a better life and cared for all kinds of people and you helped your aunt when she was down and out. I mean, you may have a great resume. But the hour that Jesus came to was an hour to give life to us, to reconcile us to God, to put us back in right standing with him, for him to become our father. So at some moments, to as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. To as many as received him. And if you're here, maybe you're running through life, you've been drinking lots of life and you're intoxicated on life. And can this be a sober moment for you where you just stop and you think about, hey, where are you headed? What does all this stuff mean? Did you know the God of the universe wants to be reconciled to you? He wants to be your father. Would you just stop and let that happen? Would you just look to him this morning in faith? and recognize that you need him to be your father? Let's just bow our heads together. Maybe there's some folks here who just need to have a quick conversation with the Lord himself. Father, I pray for every person who's here this morning, busy with life, maybe feeling trapped by life, just doing the next thing, but the Lord missing the big deal the ultimate thing. You, the centerpiece of it all, informing every day, every moment of our lives. You, our Father. Listen, if you're here and you you want to receive God's grace and be restored to Him, just tell Him that. Say, oh God, I've been wayward. I've been busy doing my own life. I've been drinking lots of life. But God, it's just not meeting me. And I I know I need something. And it just makes sense what I'm hearing this morning. God, I need you. I need you. So whatever is broken between us, God, I know it's not your fault. It's my fault. I've sinned. I've fallen short. God, would you forgive me? To give me that forgiveness in my life. And I want to be restored to you. I want to be your child. I want to belong to you. I don't want any barriers anymore. I want to know that when I wake up in the morning, every hour, you're my father. So right now, I, I receive Jesus Christ. I believe in you. I receive who you are. The Savior came to save me 
from judgment and sin and separation from God. I receive you this morning. Come, come dwell in my life. Come lead me from this moment forward. Come inform every hour of my life, however many hours I have left. Let every one of those hours be touched by what you did for me in that hour. Father, now I pray for, for every person here who's recognized the Savior and welcomed him. But Lord, who are here this morning battling sin in their lives. Lord, all of us are described that way at some point where we are battling sin. And Lord, may it be clear to us perhaps where sin has gained the upper hand. It has stayed too long. It has become too dominant. It is defining who we are. It is limiting where we go and where we don't go and what we do and what we don't do. It is robbing us of joy and liberation and freedom. But Lord, there was an hour in which you did something powerful to us and for us that we now might walk in newness of life. So Lord, this hour is an hour for newness of life. It's an hour for new creatures to be empowered for new things. God, I pray over each of us. I pray that we would be humble enough to not be praying this for somebody else right now. But we would be very aware where the old is too much the everyday. God, would you visit this hour with that hour? Would you jolt our lives? Would you awaken your spirit and your word in our lives so that the old things begin to really be the used to be old things? We're not being conformed to those things anymore. We're being conformed to the image of your son as new creations in Christ. God, would you go to work? in our lives? Would you awaken a reality in our lives? Lord, would we stand in this hour really, really aware how significant it was for you to begin to pray for us and to say, Father, the hour, the hour is here. Lord, the hour that needed to do some things for us that we could never done, it's come. And now, Lord, we live in this new hour. Father, would you fill our week this week? Would you fill our hours this week with the impact of that hour? With freedom and joy and direction and belonging and awareness and inner strength and courage and rightness with you. Oh Lord, of all the hours in all of eternity, Lord, we this morning say, Lord, thank you for that hour, that particular hour. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, can I just ask you to do this? Um, you need some prayer this morning. If, if, if you're trying to, to get a sense of, hey, how do I belong to God? And you're not sure about that. Would you come ask one of our prayer team members to just pray with you about that this morning. If you're in the battle of your life and you just feel you're just in over your head and this is a tough hour, you're not turning a corner. You're not overcoming something. 
And it could be ugly sins like pornography and some hidden thing that nobody knows is going on. Or it could be the more acceptable pretty sins like I'm just fearful and anxious all the time. But don't be okay with that. An hour came that's meant to bust that stuff up and change it. So don't leave this morning if, if, if there's somewhere that you could get some prayer going in your life. Come ask one of these guys to pray with you. Um, you need some help overcoming the gloat, right? I know some of you right now are going to see the other goat, but for those of you who need some help overcoming the greatest deceiver of all time, come ask for some prayer. We're glad to pray with you. All right, love you guys. Live stream folks, great to be with you in some form or fashion. Those of you guys all over the country, thanks for letting us know you're watching. Uh, Grateful to be able to serve you. See you guys next week. Thank you.